his word. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your love for us, for your love for this place that we call Delray Church, that you saw fit in the 1950s to corral a, a, a group of people to come here and plant a church, and you continue to sustain this church in this corner of Los Angeles, calling and gathering people to yourself where they can come and they can hear about you, where they can lay aside the worries of the week and the stresses of the day, and they can come and hear clearly what you have done for them, your love for them, your promises to them. Lord, we, we, we thank you that we are able to gather this day, and we pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the good things that you have done. Lord, give us, give us hearts that will be soft so that we can hear from you as we come before your word this day. Bless your word, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. The title of my sermon for this Lord's Day is The Lord's House. Today, I will be continuing my sermon series that, that I titled Faithful to Fulfill, uh, which I put on pause uh, around, around the holidays. Uh, we had Palm Sunday, we had Easter, we had Ascension Sunday, we had Mother's Day, we had some baptisms. And so I, I have been in previous weeks offering some, some sermons on various topics as a part of our corporate discipleship. And, and now that, uh, you know, things have sort of passed and we're getting back into the routine of things, I'm excited to jump back into our sermon series, Faithful to Fulfill, and come back to this section of our Bible that is known as the post-exilic section. Uh, these are the texts that cover an era of history that is known as the post-exilic era. That said, would you please open up your Bibles and find your way to the third chapter in the book of Ezra. This book begins the biblical narrative of what we refer to as the post-exile. As you are turning there, let me remind you of the content of the book. Ezra is an ancient historical account that is uh, capturing a very pivotal moment in the history of God's people Israel. What is that pivotal moment? It's the end of exile, hence post-exile. It's the end of the exilic era when Israel was in exile. Now it has come to completion. We're stepping into this pivotal moment of the post-exile. Israel as a nation had been destroyed, had been destroyed in the, before this era of exile. The northern portion of the land of Israel and the people were wiped out by the foreign power of the Assyrian Empire. Subsequently, in their weakened state, the remaining southern portion of the land of Israel, they were wiped out. And, and with that section of, the, of, of Israel's kingdom being wiped out, so too the holy temple of Jerusalem was toppled. The holy city of David was in ruins. The inhabitants, the Israelites, were exiled. They were completely as a nation reduced to ashes. In fact, when we began our study in the book of Ezra, my first sermon title was Out of the Ashes. As we open the book of Ezra, we are taken into this moment in Israel's uh, 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 history where the phoenix rises, where, where what had been reduced to ashes is now coming to life again. A dead nation is being resurrected by God. The great shepherd of his people, God, takes his shepherd's staff and he goes out into the wilderness of the exile and he finds his lost sheep and he regathers them as a remnant flock in, of all places, the land of Israel, the promised land, the land promised to the patriarch Abraham. This land and that people and the prosperity that would come, God now brings them back, hence the title of this series, Faithful to Fulfill. We see that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. So here they are in the promised land. At that point, the promised land, however, was no longer flowing with milk and honey. It was a place that was barren. It was dusty. It was dead. After many decades of being in exile, they come home, or what once was home, and, 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 and of course the land now had been occupied by others who had come in. On the rubble of their temple, others had set up pagan altars. On the, you know, the remains of their homes, others had set up shop. And so now you're coming to what was once your home, but it's, it's, it's filled, it's occupied, it's, it's destroyed. It's a dystopian kind of Mad Max moment. And one of the first things that they do as they get back to the land of promise, rather than running around and sort of tending to find their old neighborhoods and old schools and what have you, the first thing that they do is they center their worship with the building of an altar to God. 
which we read about in Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. In our last study in Ezra, we explored Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and we explored in that section the significance of altars. Because as they come back from exile, they get back to the land and they set up an altar. So we need to understand what are altars. They are sacred stands with surfaces that are used for sacrifice. And those surfaces are filled with symbology. The people are so thankful. They are so joyful. They want to worship. They want to commemorate that historic moment. And so they build an altar, a sacred stand, a surface for sacrifice that's filled with symbology. So if you missed that sermon, you could go back online and listen to it because I, I at length get into the significance of altars. Let me remind you that altars play a significant role in the history of redemption, the history of God's people Israel. You go back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and you see uh, Eden. You see the creation itself is like an altar unto God. We, we move then from Eden to paradise lost, to the fall, and we come up to the time of Noah. We see Noah in Genesis 8 building an altar. Abram in Genesis 12 building an altar. Isaac at Beersheba in Genesis 26 building an altar. Jacob builds an altar at Sheshem in Genesis 33. Moses has an altar in Exodus 24. There's the altar of the tabernacle, the holy tabernacle that you read about in Exodus 27. There's Joshua's altar at Ebal in Joshua 8. Samuel's altar at Ramah in 1 Samuel 7. Saul's altar in 1 Samuel 14. David's altar in Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. Elijah's altar in 1 Kings 18. A fantastic passage to study and see that, that altar and its power and its symbology. And of course, the grandest of all the altars in this storyline is the altar to Solomon's temple that we read about in 2 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 1. That temple that was toppled with the Babylonian Empire that came in and wiped out the south, that was that great altar that Solomon built. And now, now that, that it was toppled, now they come back and they rebuild that altar in Ezra chapter 3. And in this instance, as they are building this altar, to remind you of this context, as I shared with you in the last message, it was a bit of a counterintuitive move on their part. You're coming back to a land that has hostile occupants in it. You're coming back to the place of your altar that has debris and altars and paganism now upon it. You're coming back as a weakened people after being in an era of, of, of exile for decades and decades. And now you're coming back to this territory with enemies on the horizon who will not be happy that you are there. The strategic thing to do would have been to use all of your resources and manpower to build a fortress, build a castle, build a shelter for protection. But instead they go out in the open and they build an altar a dangerous move on their part, a bold move on their part, trusting that God would be their protector as they worshiped him. And in worship, they would find strength for the rebuilding that was ahead. In Ezra 3 through chapter 4, we see the people of God encountering opposition with this context of setting up the altar in the land of promise. We're going to see opposition coming. It is likely that the location, as I shared, where they built had previously been desecrated by pagan altars over time that they were in exile. And so in that process, they're not just building an altar, they have to tear down altars. And that's going to provoke opposition. Uh, if you're tearing down other people's stuff in order to build up your stuff, that's going to provoke opposition. You're, you are going to create conflict by doing such a thing. As a modern equivalent, it's kind of like gang graffiti. If the Crips throw up some graffiti and then the bloods spray on top of it, you're going to create conflict. That's how that goes down in Los Angeles. Or like someone painting over uh, Nipsey's mural on Slauson. If you get caught painting over Nipsey's mural on Slauson, you, you could die doing something like that. Or like we're on quarantine and we're going to open up the building uh, next week. And, and, you know, say we went inside and there was like a, a pagan shrine or a satanic cult in there. You know, we're going to fight. We're going to throw down. What, did you, what are you guys doing in there? You got to get out. You know, this is, this is for them to come back and do something like this. You got to understand they're, they're creating conflict for themselves. And along with that conflict, they're, they're, they're going to have to sacrifice for rebuilding. This is going to take a lot of work. Uh, we left off at, at verse 7 in our last study. If you would look at verse 7, please. 
There you read in verse 7 about the people sacrificing their money and their resources. And even notice in verse 7 their food. They're sacrificing their food, their money, their resources so that they can rebuild a place of worship. That's their priority. We need a place of worship. And so they hire, verse 7, skilled laborers to go and get wood from Lebanon. Lebanon had amazing cedar trees. They were, uh, uh, they were coveted wood in the ancient Near East. In Hebrew, uh, the cedars of Lebanon are symbols in Hebrew culture. The cedars of Lebanon were symbols of, of power and of, and of might. And so, so to, have, to have cedar for building your worship center, your temple, this is a big deal. It symbolizes great power. Uh, we read in the Hebrew Bible in Psalm uh, 29 when God wants to make a point about his own power. In verses 4 and 5, God juxtaposes himself with cedar that everyone acknowledged was a powerful piece of material. And we read in Psalm 29 verse 4 that the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks cedars. The voice of the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon, Psalm 29 5. Those cedars are strong. They don't break like that, but in God's fingers, they snap like pretzels. The cedars of the temple would serve as a picture of God's might. And so they're waiting for the wood to arrive. They're waiting to build this temple. And, and, and where we pick up, where we left off, verse 7, we're going to see them beginning to build the temple. And so in last week's message, as they built the altar, I took the time to give you a theology of altars. Today, I want to take the time to give you a theology of temple. What is this worship center, this temple? Why is it so important? What's it all about? The first point on your outline is that the temple is a witness. Draw your eyes at the text in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8. We read, Now in the second year of their coming, in the house of God at Jerusalem, in the house of God, the temple is to serve as the house of God. The temple is to be a, a, a picture, a witness of, of God's house. You're supposed to look at that and say, that's, that's God's dwelling place. Now, notice here in verse 8, I, I stopped intentionally because it says, in the second year of the coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, but they haven't built the house yet. But there's talk of it being a house. The, the actual location that they're standing on is the house of God and that's where they'll build the house of God. There's something about that real estate that I need you to see. I want you to see this so that while the temple itself is really special and those cedars and it's gonna be really cool, the temple's really cool, but the, but, but the real estate is also significant. That point on the planet is the house of God, the text tells us. That point on the planet is sacred. Now, we're at 8505 Saran Drive. Nothing special about this place. I mean, you know, it's just, a, it's just a piece of real estate on the west side of Los Angeles. But can you imagine, like, being in a physical location on the planet where it, it, it's said to be, by way of revelation, so you could take that to the bank, that it's God's house, that that land is God's house. That location is sacred not because of something that is innate in the soil or whatever, but because the sovereign has chosen to make himself a dwelling there. That place was believed to be a kind of cosmic entryway into the planet to serve as a witness to creation. The, that place was, was a witness of, of God manifesting his presence in the creation. It was a porthole from the heavens to the earth where the things above that we cannot see manifest in the earth and it terminates right there on the longitudinal and the latitudinal coordinates of Jerusalem. Right there terminates the house of God. For uh, Marvel fans, it's like the guardian of Asgard standing at the rainbow bridge that joins the galaxies. And, and Idris Elba standing there, right, guarding the planets from the other universes and whatever. Like, this isn't fiction, though. That place described in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8 is like a... Uh, for you physics nerds, it's like a wormhole tunnel of space and time and earth and heaven and God and humanity all coming to that place. Hence, it is sacred ground. Hence, Ezra tells us this is the house of God. In fact, to this day, according to rabbinical traditions in the land, the divine presence of God still marks the site. Of course, the temple today in 2021 is gone. The temple was destroyed in uh, 70 AD by the Roman Empire. Jesus himself prophesied that it would be destroyed. 
and it has never been erected since, although attempts have been made. And in my next sermon, I will say more about such attempts and tensions in the land that are still with us today in that slice of real estate. For today, let me emphasize the theology of the temple, and it begins with you seeing that it's a witness. It's a witness of this opening of the heavens and the earth where God dwells. It's full of so much symbology. And so I want us to appreciate this symbology and understand this. So, so we're going to camp here for just a moment. I need to make sure that you guys get the theology of the temple so that as we're reading the narrative of the post-exiles rebuilding the temple, you, you get what's going on. It's holy ground. Along with the idea of it being holy ground, along with the idea of it being like this porthole from the heavens to the earth, it, it also served, the temple did, as an archetype. It, it's an archetype of, of something greater. We see this belief in the book of Hebrews. You can write this down, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. I'll read it to you. They offer in a sanctuary that is a sketch and shadow of the heavenly one. The temple is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly one. It's an archetype. What, they are, what they're going to be building in Ezra is, is actually an archetype of something that's above in the heavens. That's Hebrews 8.5. Let me read to you Hebrews 9.1. It talks about, and I quote, the divine worship of the earthly sanctuary. And Hebrews 9.24 speaks about the holy place made with hands, which is a mere copy of the true one that is in heaven itself, end quote. So it's an archetype. It's a porthole from the heavens to the earth. It's an archetype. What is physically being made by their hands is actually mirroring something that is in the heavens. So then what those humans will see in Jerusalem is what angels are seeing in the heavens above. It's an archetype. In the Bible, we see references to such mirroring from the earthly temple to the heavenly temple. We see God's uh, dwelling in a veil of smoke and darkness in the heavens is a duplicate, an archetype of the Holy of Holies. When we look at 2 Samuel 22 or Psalm 18 or Psalm 97 or Revelation 15, the Holy of Holies that we see in the, in the temple where God's presence is felt, it reflects the actual Holy of Holies in the heavens. You know how it can feel when someone enters the room? You know, when someone walks in the room, say you're in your living room or whatever, and your, your spouse or child or loved one or whatever comes home, you know what it feels like when someone enters the room? Yeah, well, multiply it all the more. In that room on planet Earth, God enters. And his, and his entering is an archetype of his presence above. God's omnipresent. I'll say more about that. He's not leaving the heavens and coming to the earth because God is omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere, but he enters the temple. There's a sense in which you could say, that, like, you know, that house right there. You say, God's inside of that. Now, when we use inside language, we're being analogical. We're being ectypal. We're, 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 we're limited by our human language in that regard because God himself isn't like inside things. God is without parts. So he technically doesn't enter into things in a technical sense, right? I can have a leg in my car and a leg outside of my car, but I am made of parts. I have legs and arms and a head and a torso and so forth. I'm made of parts, but God is not made of parts. God doesn't have one part in here and one part in there. God has no parts. He's an immaterial being. Further, he's a simple being. That is to say, he is not a composite of parts. So God is everywhere. God is, God is everywhere, right? He's everywhere, but there's a sense in which he's not actually in anything in a technical sense. When we talk about him being in the temple, we're talking about it analogically. In the universe, God everywhere, but he's not the universe because he's the cause of the universe. So he's everywhere in the creation at once, and yet he is not the creation. Uh, religions like pantheism posit that God's the creation. Religions that are panentheistic posit that God's in the creation like liquid inside of a cup or what have you. But when we're talking about God being in the temple, we're, we're saying we're, we're using language that is analogical. It's metaphoric. There's a sense in which he is in there, but he can't be contained by the temple because God can't be contained by anything because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once presence. There is nowhere where he is not. God is ubiquitous. He transcends our space and time. So while he can manifest his presence in a place in a unique way, he is not limited to space. Just as the historical Jesus was God in the flesh, 
So he was localized in that earthly body, yet he transcends, he transcends in, in, in his earthly union with the Father and the Spirit. He's omnipresent, immaterial, holy, the creator God who became flesh. So there's a sense in which you say, hey, Jesus, that's God right there. And yet he can say things like, lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. He's, he's everywhere. He's God. He's one with the Father and one with the Spirit. So to the temple in Jerusalem, there's a sense where he's in there, but, you know, he's, he's obviously still everywhere, but there's something that he's doing in there that's unique. He's manifesting himself. This porthole's real. There's something from the heavens coming down into the earth. And what we're seeing is, is actually an archetype of what the angels see. This is, this is amazing. This isn't like an idol is when a man makes something and goes, ah, this will represent God. No, no, this is God's revelation of himself through that physical location and that physical structure. In the temple, we see the God of creation and the God of Israel are one and the same. The temple pictures his covenant with Israel and the temple pictures his creation of the universe. God is present in the creation. Analogically, ectypally, God manifests himself to Israel in the temple. In scripture, we see at the temple of Solomon, when, when it was dedicated, Solomon acknowledges this point that I'm explaining to you. Solomon says, God's not contained in the temple. We read in 1 Kings chapter 8, let me quote to you verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. And yet at the same time, at the same time we read in scripture, Psalm 11 verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. God is in there, analogically, in a sense he's in that structure. Meanwhile, the psalmist goes on to say that the Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 11 verse 4, he's in heaven and he's in that temple. It's heaven and earth coming together in that physical location. So, so, so this moment in history is significant because they're not just building a building. They're like building a porthole from the earth to the heavens. And God says at the beginning of verse 8, this is my house. And they haven't built the house yet, so his presence is with them. There's something that's going on in heaven now happening in the earth. It's a witness, this first point on your outline, of God's faithfulness to the people. It's a, a witness of God's mission through the people. You see, this, this place was viewed in ancient days as the center of the earth. The prophet Ezekiel described the place that they're standing on in Ezra 3 as the center of the nations, Ezekiel 5.5. Ezekiel 38.12, he describes that place as the navel of the earth. Jerusalem is the center of the earth in their, thought, in their, in their worldview. So God is placing the temple in the, the center of creation so that through his covenant people, God will draw creation to himself. It's, it's a witness from God to the earth. It's in the center of the earth. This is significant because when God chose to, to pick a place where he would dwell, he didn't pick a corner, he picked the center. And he comes to the center to establish a, a people for himself. And like gravity, he will pull the nations to himself in that place. And from among those who he's pulling, he will save a people for, for himself from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. In the prophecies of the Bible, we read of a coming day and a coming temple. We read of a coming king, more importantly, Jesus, who will return to the earth a second time. And he will do just that, draw the nations together by, by the gravity of God from the four corners of the earth to that point. That point, that place that we're reading about, this moment in history, post-exile. We thought they were dead, and now they've come back to life. And now they're building the temple. And that temple is a witness. That temple is a picture to the nations of their common creator. The temple was a building that bore witness, yes, to the God of Israel and the covenant that God made with the people of Israel, but it bore witness to him being the creator God. The very structure of the temple, if I had PowerPoint, I would show you slides at this point, but the very structure of the temple, the design of the temple, the artwork of the temple, the furniture of the temple, it all has these pictures of paradise. It looks like Eden. It reminds us of Eden. In Eden, humanity lived with God. That was God's dwelling place in Eden. His presence was in paradise. When humanity sinned against their creator, they were exiled from his presence. 
The exile of Israel historically reminds us of the exile of humanity from paradise. The return of the people to the land reminds us that God will provide a way home and a way back to paradise, a way back to his presence. Our mother Eve, our father Adam, they were clothed with a sacrifice after they sinned. They were driven, exiled out of paradise and the angels were camped there to keep them in exile. In the temple, we have an altar of sacrifice. We have the angels and the Ark of the Covenant. We have the symbols of the presence of God. We have, we have the images of the tree and the tree of life. And you have this porthole of God's presence, just like Eden. It's a picture of creation being restored. It's a shadow of creation being restored when the archetype and the actual thing above will come together again as it was in the very beginning when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and placed humanity in the earth to live in his house and be in his presence. The porthole of the temple in Jewish tradition was believed to be the very place actually where God created Adam and Eve. If you go to the land today and you, you, you speak with Orthodox Jewish people and you ask them about their traditions and their theology and the understanding of it all, they believe that that land right there is not just where the temple was. That's where God made Adam and Eve. It's a picture of creation, of creation. And after exile and wandering and Noah's flood and calling Abram, God brought his chosen people back to the very place where the rebellion began with Adam and Eve. In that place where the tree of life once emanated, a new tree would be planted in the soil of Israel, the olive tree of God's people, the olive branch, which is a symbol of peace. You see, there's a peace that is coming to the raging war of humanity against their creator. In fact, it was believed that this location isn't just the place where uh, God made Adam and Eve, but that location is also believed to be the place where Abram offered Isaac in that great scene that we read about in the book of Genesis. As well, it is believed to be the place where David wanted to build the original temple that Solomon brought to fruition. It all happened in that same location. In the providence of God, he's been bringing people there and doing things there. And here in Ezra 3, as you read verse 8 and you read about the house of the Lord, all of that is in the backdrop of it. The temple pictures what was lost is being restored by the mercy of God. God is going to bring his presence to the earth. He is going to witness to creation. After losing the temple for their sin, God offers forgiveness and he brings them back. And when they get back, he's there in the land dwelling among them as they build the temple that he will fill. The temple is a witness. The temple is full of symbols. Holiness, forgiveness, rest, revelation, communication, community, justice, peace. Speaking of peace... King David was prevented from building the temple because he was a man of war and injustice. Solomon was chosen to be the builder because according to 1 Chronicles 22, 9, he was a man of peace. And the seed of David, Yeshua, Jesus, is a man of peace. He's the prince of peace who died as the ultimate sacrifice and rend the curtain of the temple in a divine display of God's vindication and vicarious atonement in him. In that place, Jerusalem, as the Hebrews would say, Yerushalayim. It is worth noting that in Hebrew etymology, Yerushalayim means literally the city of peace. So where humanity declared war on God with our father Adam and our mother Eve, God brings them back to the land and he makes it a city of peace, Yerushalayim. According to the Midrash, the name Yerushalayim actually is a combination of two names united by God, Yehreh, which means abiding place, a name that was given by Abram to the place with the sacrifice of his son, and then Shalem, which is a name that means a place of peace. In modern Arabic and Hebrew, when you, uh, when, when you greet someone, you say what? You say Shalom. Shalom. Yerushalayim. Shalom. Shalayim. You hear the similarities there. This is a place of peace. The temple is a witness of peace. God is bringing peace to the creation. Humanity rebelled against God. Humanity made a war with God. Humanity is at odds with God, enemies with God. And God comes with peace to humanity. God comes with this picture of paradise being restored. God comes with a porthole to bring his presence. It witnesses all of these deep theological truths. Now let's get back into the passage. You've got all that imagery and theology. Now we got to now you got to get to work, though. And really, they have to get to work. That, all those symbols, 
aren't going to make themselves. Look back at the text in verse 8. Now in the year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of the brothers and the priests and the Levites, all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, exile. What does it say? They began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Work, work. It's mentioned twice in there. We move from the first point on your outline, witness, to the second point, work. Here we read about the work. Let's look at some of the details here in the text. Notice the work did not begin until the second month of the second year after their arrival. So this means that there was a delay of seven months after the altar was built. So there's a delay. The scholars place this around the time of May or June. So it's right about the time that, that we are. Isn't that interesting? 530, I didn't plan that. 536 B.C. So it's exactly 70 years from their exile, from the first deportation in 605. The question here about the work, though, is like, why the delay when you read these verses? Like, what are they waiting for? Now, recall what we read in verse 7. They had, a, they had to make a Home Depot run. They had to go to uh, Home Depot Lebanon and get the cedars, and that's going to take some time. So they're waiting for the delivery of the wood to get back. And they're not waiting idly by, however. There's certainly a great deal of preparation. There's planning to do, measurements to draw. Uh, along with the wood, there would be rock to quarry for, for, for purposes of rebuilding the temple. There's all sorts of work that needs to be done. And here we're reading about the work to create the witness of the temple. Verse 8 describes the planning. We read of Zerubbabel, who's a government authority. We read of Yeshua, who's a religious authority. We read of other religious officials, the priests and the Levites. It was their job to lead the nation in the building of the temple. There was no doubt a great deal of work in the managing of the people that we're reading about here in verse 8. The all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem. There's a whole bunch of people. We're going to have to lead these people, take care of these people, you know, make sure that people have food to eat and shelter. And that, you know, this is, this is a big management project. Draw your eyes back at the text in verse 9. Then Yeshua and his sons and the brothers, they stood with Kadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad and their sons and their brothers and the Levites to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. So we're reading about the work. We want to have this, this building that's this witness that has all that symbology that I covered, but it's going to take work to get it done. We're reading here about the priests and the Levites. The Levites were from the, 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 the particular tribe. There's 12 tribes in Israel. They're a particular tribe of the Israelites that descended from Levi. He's one of the 12 sons of Jacob, Levi, hence Levites. The priests of Israel were a group of qualified men from within the tribe of Levites who had responsibilities over the tabernacle and then subsequently in the temple. So all of the priests are supposed to be Levites according to the law, but not all Levites are actually priests, okay? So among the Levitical priests is the high priest. The first high priest was Aaron, the brother of Moses. His sons and their descendants would, would serve as the future high priests of the nation of Israel. And the high priest was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies in, in, in the tabernacle, subsequently in the temple, on the Day of Atonement. And so, so the high priest was a big deal. The priests are serving under him, the Levites under them. Ezra, one of the, one of the leaders, you know, the author of this book that we're reading about, the book of Ezra, he, he's actually a Levitical priest, according to Nehemiah 12.1. And so, so here we're reading about the priests. Here we're reading about the work before them. The people coming back to the land, restoring the temple, they need priests. After all, the priesthood is older than the temple itself. In the days of Moses, the Lord established this priesthood for the people while they were in the Exodus and entering into the land. So the, you got to have priests if you're going to have a temple. So the, the priests got to get to work. And their work is grueling work, if it is done right. It's grueling work. For starters, they mediated sacrifices. So, so these guys would be covered in blood all day long. You think you got a hard job? You, you know, you don't, you don't know nothing. These guys are covered in blood all day long. There's morning sacrifices, evening sacrifices. Throughout the year, there's great pilgrimages where people come to Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands of people descend at the temple. And there's animal sacrifice. The animal sacrifice, of course, is a symbol of an innocent thing losing its life in, in the place of a guilty thing. Which, which shows us our, our need for sacrifice and points ultimately to the one innocent one who would come and atone for his people, the Lord Jesus. 
So they're, they're there and they're doing sacrifice. They're, they're killing and cutting animal flesh all day. The priests are butchers. The priests are, are teachers. They have to know the law of Moses. They have to know sacred tradition. They're, they're butchers. They're teachers. They're construction workers. I mean, think about all those hats, butchering, teaching, and construction. And there's more. They're also, they also perform medical duties. They help folks with illnesses and ailments as a part of their ritual and purity. So you're a butcher, a teacher, a construction worker, and a nurse all in one. But they also served as counselors and legal judges to resolve community conflicts. So they would spend hours of their day dealing with people who are fighting with each other, dealing with people who are having problems and deliberating on com community issues and, 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 and serving as judges and serving as butchers and serving as therapists and serving as nurses and serving, oh yeah, as janitors. They have to clean the temple and keep everything stocked. And serving as hosts, they have to host people during the high holy days. I mean, this is a high-stress job. Cleaning, cleaning up after the people, dealing with people mad at each other and mad at you and sinning at God. And, you, and you'd have to call, call it all up and even, you know, tell people like, hey, you know, you're, you can't come in the temple because you're not clean and people will be mad at you. And you've got to take people to the baptismal pools outside of the temple and they've got to do ceremonial washings and people are going to be mad at you. And you've got to counsel people, they'll be mad at you. And then you've got to kill animals and then you've got to wear this crazy uniform that the priest had to wear. I mean, the late night studying scripture to keep up with everything going on. I mean, on, on a human level, the horizontal human level, these priests had their work cut out for them. And that's just the horizontal level. Let's talk about the vertical level. God holds these priests to a very high standard. And so they got to deal not only with, like, you know, the human stuff. They got to deal with the divine stuff. They stand before God. They're mediators between God and man. They have a, a, a level of expectation of ritual obedience and observance themselves, and they will be judged harshly by God, understandably given their position. We get that. A police officer who fails to protect someone who's being mugged, we hold to a higher standard than other professions. A florist who doesn't protect someone getting mugged, that's a florist, right? A, a, a swimming instructor who doesn't protect someone from getting mugged, it's a swimming instructor, right? But a police officer, it, hey, hey, you, you know, you should have done something about that. We hold you to a higher standard. And so too, the priests are held to a higher standard by God because of their occupation. I think of Abihu and Nadad, who we read about in Leviticus 10. The Lord struck them down in the midst of serving as priests for their sin. Just boom, dead, gone. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when the man touched the Ark of the Covenant the piece of furniture in the temple, the, the angels that symbolize Eden and all that, when he touched it, boom, struck dead. There's a folklore of the high priest when they would en enter once a year on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, when the high priest would walk in, there's folklore that they would tie a, a rope to him and put bells on the rope so that when he went in the Holy of Holies, if he dropped dead, they'd hear the bells stop going and they could pull the body out. Now, incidentally, that's folklore. We don't have biblical evidence of that. Uh, you know, so we don't, we don't know whether or not for sure that's the case. The earliest source that we have of it comes from the 13th century in a Jewish work known as the Zohar. But anyway, the point is, it's serious work. You are held by God to a higher standard. It was understood of that. And there are biblical instances of people dying doing this job by, by God himself. And then you've got to deal with people. This is scary work. And all of this is a reminder of our great high priest, Jesus, and what he has done for us. He entered the Holy of Holies. He was struck down for us. He bore the wrath for us, the punishment that, that we deserved. He took himself. He suffered. He suffered not just hanging on the cross on that one infamous Friday, but every single day. He is with his people post-resurrection, post-ascension. He stands as our high priest. The high priest and the sacrifice in one man, the lamb and the Lord in one man, God incarnate. And every day he serves as the priest of his people and we can run to him at any time with our problems and our conflicts and our hurt and our confusion and our sin. And he wears all of these hats for his people, reconciling, counseling, leading, loving, cleaning us up, washing us, taking away our impurities, building his church, just as these priests were building the temple. Oh, that you would come to him. 
Oh, that you hear me talk of him. Your hearts would be stirred and you would come to him as your priest to provide you forgiveness and fullness and freedom. The priests in Ezra, they look forward to the great priest that I come proclaiming to you this day. And as we understand their responsibility in the text and we understand the theology of the temple, oh, may the Spirit of God draw us here today, Delray Church, in sanctification and repentance and faith. God judged the priests because of their sacred position among his people and the temple, his house. And when you are in someone's house, you respect the rules of the house. The man and the woman of the house, you respect. Being in God's house, these were, were rules, not for rules' sake, but for man's protection. God is holy. God's a consuming fire. By manifesting his presence in this porthole, humanity would need to approach that place with caution to come with hearts prepared. They, they, they were instructed and led by the priests as they approached the temple. They would read the Psalms of Ascent. They would come and they would sing and they would be baptized and wash themselves before they came to the temple. That place was where God was. You don't just run up in there. You confess your sin and you come to worship. You come in repentance and faith. God's house was not a bachelor pad to just go kick it in. It wasn't a cool loft in the downtown to just, you know, pop in on. It's a place of worship. On your outline, you have witness. On your outline, you have work. And the next point on the outline is worship. I shared with you the rich symbols of the temple, the symbols of the priests. And understand that it's not just a monument of symbol, it's, it's a place of sacrifice and worship. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 10, where the builders had laid the foundation of the temple, the priests, they stood in their apparel with the trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They come to praise, they come to worship. The temple's about witness, the temple's about work, the temple's about worship. The men move from their work to worship. They get the foundation down and then they begin to lift their, their praises up. Foundations down, praises up. Along with the praises of worship, they have instrumentation. In Jewish history, the great King David was credited with uh, the musical worship of the temple. And so you see him referenced here in verse 10. And of course, David was given by God the covenant, the Davidic covenant, that there would be one who would be, be his progeny, his seed, who would restore all things in the broken earth. No doubt the sounds of David's music brought to mind the Davidic covenantal hopes of the people. The instrumentation, like the temple, is full of symbology. Scholars note that the clashing of symbols that we read about here, the clashing of symbols symbolize the clapping of thunder. The clapping of thunder. You hear that sound and it's, it's, it's an intense sound because you're standing in an intense place. The trumpets functioned as signaling devices of, of battlefields. They would, those, those were the sounds of battlefields. So, I mean, you, you think about the instrumentation here, and it's not soft melody. This is like busting caps or something, you know, pow, 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 pow. You, know, you go, whoa, 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 that's intense. What is that? God is going to manifest himself here. This is powerful. This is amazing. We will see in our next study in fact, that the, the symbol of the horns is actually quite timely because a battle was brewing and the sound of those horns is foreshadowing the battle that is going to come in the narrative. God was providentially ahead of things. God, the, the, the sound of battle goes out because there's enemies on the horizon and God is serving them notice that, that, that his people are back and he's not to be trifled with. And the providence of God, it's also worth noting that the timeline here that we've been reading about in terms of them coming back from exile... In this specific moment in history, the timeline exactly parallels Solomon's temple. According to verses 8 and 9, if you cross-reference that with 1 Kings 6.1, we're in the same month. The same month that Solomon built his temple is the same month that Ezra and Zerubbabel are there building this temple. Clearly, God is in the heavens unraveling his plan with his perfect timing. You don't go off into exile for 70 years and just by coincidence happened to come back in the same month that Solomon's temple was being built and built it. Clearly, Ezra is telling us, look, this is providence. Look, God is in control. Look, God has everything under control. Well, brother and sister, we need to be reminded of that, don't we? That God is in full control. He's in full control of everything in our lives. We can get anxious. We can get impatient. We can forget that he is on the throne. 
with COVID and quarantines and the impact that it has had on our lives, we can feel anxious, we can feel angry, we can feel confused, we can feel fearful. We need to be reminded that the CDC is not in control. God is in control. Let, let alone is the Rona in control. No, the Redeemer's in control. He, he, he's unraveling everything according to plan. When things are reopening, when we can take off our masks, when all of that, he has ordained it and he is in control of all of it. He is not on his throne in heaven going, I can't believe what they're doing in North America. He's in control. We can feel rocked by shutdown. Imagine 70 years of shutdown for the people. 70 years of masks. Imagine that. Imagine all of the emotions of 70 years of doing this, and now you're back in the land, and there's enemies on the horizon. And God is showing them, look, I'm in full control. Solomon, you guys, I'm in control. Sound the horns, I'm in control. I'm in control. If you don't hold on to that, you know what takes place? Your praise is ruined. Your joy is ruined. It's it's gone. And what we see in the text is they're clearly holding on to this. We see them filled with praise. Look at verse 11. They sang, praising and giving thanks to God. And what do they say? They say, he is good. His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all of the people shouted, verse 11, with a great shout. And they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They're filled with joy. God's in control. God's on the throne. And he's making a porthole and he's going to build a throne in the earth. How cool is that? And so the people start praising his divine attributes, his attribute of goodness and loving kindness and faithfulness. God is faithful. This faithfulness is not abstract. The text specifies in what way he is faithful. He is faithful to Israel forever. This is exactly what this sermon series is is hitting on, faithful to fulfill. The word that is used here for loving kindness is a very special Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed speaks of God's covenantal love. Scholars note that chesed communicates loving protection over the nation. God's covenantal loyal love, which exists forever with his people Israel. Now that the temple worship was being reestablished, the people again recognized the commitment of God's un- unending chesed covenantal love. Keep in mind, Israel didn't do anything to be back in the land. Keep that in mind. They were on exile, right? Decades have passed. It's not like they were in exile, sanctifying themselves, making themselves ready, or anything like that. They did nothing to be back in the land. And this is clear, as we've been studying in the book of Ezra, when we see the small number of people who want to come back to the land. God provides providentially, through the Medo-Persian Empire, a way for them to come back. God overthrows his enemies using a, 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 a pagan nation and now offers the land back to them. And in the text, as we studied, and let me remind you, people were like, eh, I don't, I don't want to go back to the land. And there we see that God's faithful to fulfill his promise. We see in Ezra 3 evidence that, in fact, there was a, a struggle. There were so many people didn't want to come back. There's a struggle in Ezra 3. Draw your eyes at verse 6 and let me show it to you. Notice the priests were said to be 20 years old. Hebrew scholar Dr. Loken observes that all Levites above the age of 20 were given administrative responsibility here in the passage. But evidently, the age of 25 was uh, was what the Levites had to be to take on this. So so he he notes that the age that was set at 25, Numbers 8, verse 24, if you want to cross-reference, that had to be lowered because they didn't have enough guys to get the work done. There weren't enough guys to get it done, and so the Mosaic age limit is actually lowered down. Israel's short on leaders. Israel's short on saints. The people, by and large, are comfortable in Babylon. Sadly, they're missing out on worship. They'd rather sit at home. They're missing out on worship. They're, 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 they're way back in Babylon when they could be there. They're missing not just out on worship. They're missing out on prophecy. They're missing out on providence that's unfolding right in their eyes. The prophet said they would come back from exile, and now it's happening. And you had a front row seat, and you didn't want to come. The numbers are down in Israel. It's worth noting that there, according to Ezra 2, verse 41... If you look at 241, it it makes mention that there was 128 singers that went back to the land. So there's actually more people uh, ready to sing than there were actually priests. 
The list of chapter 2 might seem boring to modern readers, but it actually documents the sadness of things. There's this historical moment going on. The exile is over. Let's go. Let's sacrifice. God is good. And people are chilling. They're like, eh, I don't want to go back. And then external opposition is going to come. And you think, like, I mean, even that, I'd want to go. If I know my brothers and sisters are in trouble, I'd want to go and help them. Eh, I don't want to go back. And before that external opposition comes, we'll study that in our next installment, internal drama hits. And often that's how it goes. There's external issues and internal issues. Verse 12, look at the text. Many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's household, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. This is the internal conflict. So we move from witness, work, worship, now to weeping. There's a, a group of people who are really happy, and here there's a group of people that are sad. What's going on here? We see the shouts of joy, and then we see others who are crying. What's going on? What's the deal? Well, if you've been involved in ministry at all in your life, you know that this happens. A faith community can have people who are rejoicing and people who are not rejoicing. This happens in families. You can get together for Thanksgiving and maybe someone's marriage fell apart and someone else ha just had their first baby. And as a family, you could have people who are sad and you could have people who are happy. That, that, that happens in group of, groups of people. It, it happens in faith communities. It's a part of corporate worship. Uh, people are going through different stuff. And that's just life. And uh, sometimes it's not life. It could be sin or a maturity issue or something like that. But in any case, they need love. They need grace. They need help. So keep in mind, the first temple, the Temple of Solomon, was destroyed. Keep in mind that exile was, depending on when you got kicked out of the land, anywhere from 50 to 70 years, depending when you got kicked out of the land. So there's going to be people that are now coming back, and it specifies here, those who had seen the first temple were coming back, and they're seeing the building, but they remember the old building. Okay? I noted that the priests were 20 years old. Those guys hadn't seen Solomon's temple. Everything's new to them. Everything's exciting to them. Maybe they've never even seen cedars from Lebanon. They're like, dang, these cedars are dope. Whoa, this is crazy. And everything, everything's new. Everything's exciting for them. They're just some 20-year-old priests. What do they know? Everything's exciting. You can really kind of check your, your, your hearts uh, when you're in these moments. A lot of times, in particular, I love being around new believers. They have a way of checking uh, our hearts for those of us who've been in the faith for a while, like new believers, everything's exciting to them. <laughs> They're like, yeah, yeah, and you're like, oh, I need that, I, I need that. Like these, these priests are just excited about everything, and then these old guys are whining about everything. Now, before we stand in judgment over the old guys, we've got to put ourselves in their shoes. I mean, so Solomon's temple made, made the list of the seven wonders of the ancient world in the sixth century list of St. Gregory of Tours, I mean, like people, like this is, one of, this is one of the dopest places to be. I mean, this is Disneyland. This is, uh, you know, Magic Mountain. This is whatever's hot to you. I mean, th like this is this Solomon's Temple. And apparently the new one that they're building with Zerubbabel and Ezra isn't quite as nice. I mean, it was an amazing sight to be sure, but, you know, it, it, it doesn't look as nice. And so, so they're able to look back and remember, and they're going, man, I... You know, this, ah, this isn't the way that it used to look, and so they're having a hard time with it. I, I want to be fair to Ezra in the text, because if you're looking at the text, it's not entirely clear. Ezra doesn't give us all of this background, per se, in that. Uh, maybe maybe their, their, their weeping isn't because they're, you know, oh, the older temple was better and this one's lame or whatever. Uh, maybe they're weeping tears of joy. It, it could be the case that these are tears of joy, and they're just overcome with emotion. That said, though, outside of Ezra in the post-exilic canon, we have good reason to believe that those weren't tears of joy. In particular, in the second chapter of Haggai, we see the prophet calling out to pouting and grumbling people. And the episode overlaps this era by a dozen years or so, so it's, it's more likely the case that they, they are actually pouting about this. To quote Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, Haggai says to the people, Who is left among you? Who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? Haggai asks. So we, we, we see there is a group that remembers. We see there is a group that needed to be called to repentance. 
The devil could use that at a key moment in the history of the people to really derail them, divide them, and discourage those young priests. Look, I, I brought you back to the land. I got you here. We're building the portholes opening, the center of the planet. The nations will be drawn. This is going to be great. And then you get some guys who are like, eh, eh, eh. And that could really derail things. Those internal conflicts could prevent them from the external conflicts having success in them that are coming. Unhappy people are prone to spreading unhappiness. They're prone to making their sin your fault. They're prone to creating narratives to support those divides and delusions. And that narrative could be passed on for those people in that historic moment as they're trying to build, as their priests are doing everything that they can. And then you got a group who are like, eh, I wouldn't do it that way, or that's not how it used to be. And in so doing, they're missing out, next point, of the weightiness of the moment. We've covered witness, work, worship, weeping, now weightiness. Israel should be dead. That's the weightiness of the moment. But they're alive. And they're alive in, of all places, Jerusalem. Verse 13. The people could not distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sounds of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard from far away. Of course, there could be another layer to this weeping, because Ezra doesn't, it's, it's not entirely clear. Um, among the weeping, there could be pouting. Among the weeping, there could be, those could be tears of joy, maybe. Uh, Haggai seems to suggest otherwise, but maybe there's some weeping tears of joy. There could also be some weeping tears of repentance. Uh, you, you get there and it hits you, everything that was lost. You get there and you remember what it was before and now you're seeing the debris and the ashes and you're just overcome like, we did this to ourselves. We brought this upon ourselves. And, and isn't God good that he brought us back? And now you're seeing the mess that you made and God is standing there with you saying, I love you. Here's my chesed. And you're just overcome by that. You're, you're overcome by that. And the weightiness of this moment is creating this loud sound this loud sound that we read about here. And, 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 and it was creating this loud sound that you could not distinguish. It's just a, a very weighty, it's a very, it's a very heavy moment that is going on here. And God is going to use this little remnant, this little group of people to restore his former glory in the land. Haggai, who I cross-referenced in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, when he called out the people and he said, Oh, those of you who are here who saw the temple in his former glory, how do you see it now? How do you see it now? Is it nothing in your eyes now? Haggai goes on to tell them in Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, the glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former. And in this place I will give shalom, peace, says the Lord of hosts, Haggai 2, 9. God, God brings to this weighty moment the promise that he is going to, he's going to bring something even greater than Solomon's temple. He's going to bring something greater than what they are seeing as they're being restored. And that brings us to the last point on the outline, the point of washing. If I could get you to turn quickly so that I can land this ship of a sermon, and I want to land it in the New Testament, if you would please turn from Ezra into the Gospel of John and find your way to the second chapter in the Gospel of John. We've talked about the temple as witness. We've talked about the work to build the temple, the worship of the temple, the weeping, mixing in with the worship, the weightiness of the moment. And now we're turning to John chapter 2. And as you turn to John chapter 2, the opening of the Gospel of John opens picturing the God of creation and the Word becoming flesh. The God of creation in John 1, 1 through 1, 3 becomes flesh in John 1, 14. We read in John 1, 14 that the Word not only becomes flesh, but tabernacles is the word that is used in the Greek, or temples among his people. The God of creation, John 1, 1 through 3, is the God of Israel, John 1, 14, and he has come as a temple once again, a porthole into the earth, but this time he has come in the person of the eternal son who has become a man. John 1 wants you to see the son who has become flesh, he uses temple language and imagery and symbology. So all of the theology that we covered here today about holiness and revelation and communication and priesthood and all of that is bound up in the incarnate son. And now moving from John 1 into John 2, we see the, the temple. The, the, this isn't an archetype. This is it. Jesus of Nazareth is the temple, the one from the heavens in the earth, not an archetype. This is it. And he goes to the archetype temple, in John chapter 2, 
We see the divine temple in the flesh coming into the earthly temple, and he is upset about what has happened to the house of God. It has been defiled by sin. There were systems of injustice that were exploiting the people, and of all places, the temple. The temple, keep in mind, it's like a government building. It's like the DMV or something, right? And so you, the government is supposed to take care of it, but instead of taking care of it, they're, they're using it to take advantage of people. Look at John 2, verse 13, verse 14. You see the injustice, the money changers taking advantage of poor worshipers. Jesus gets physical. In verse 15, he throws down with them. He overturns the tables. In verse 16, he goes off on them for making his father's house into a business. Emporion, it, it is in the Greek. It means like a swap meet. You turn the worship center into a swap meet? In the Synoptic Gospels, this episode is recorded in Matthew 12 and Mark 11 and Luke 19 and they additionally add, Jesus is saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You see the importance of the temple and corporate worship. Jesus' heart is broken looking at what they've done with the place. John 2, 17, look at the text. We, we, we read, Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. This is a reference to Psalm 69, 9. In the context of the Hebrew Bible, the Davidic king is suffering in Psalm 69, he's betrayed by his friends, his enemies surround him. It's a messianic prophecy. He's actually unfolding prophecy. The way that God brought Israel back to the land and it mirrored what was going on with Solomon, now he's bringing the Davidic king and it's mirroring what the psalmist talked about. Keep in mind that in the Roman Empire, desecration of a temple, any temple is actually a capital offense. So Jesus going in there, getting physical, turning over tables and stuff, this would be the, one of the very things that they used as a part of bringing him to execution. In verse 24, though, we read that Jesus knew all men. You see that in verse 24? And Jesus tells them in John 2, 19, look at the text, John 2, 19. This is the kicker. He tells them in 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jewish people then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? Verse 21 says, and he was speaking of the temple of his body. The temple. God in the flesh. Right there. In the temple in Jerusalem. Destroy this temple. Destroy this temple. Three days it'll come back. They don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. Like, what are you talking about, man? You can't, you're not going to knock over the Jerusalem temple. What are you talking about? They didn't understand what was going on. The disciples didn't understand what was going on. Verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, we read the disciples remembered all that he had said, and they believed the scripture, the words that Jesus had spoken. This temple. Brothers and sisters, grab your communion cups. Open the top. Look at the bread, the temple of his flesh. He became flesh. He tabernacled among us. He tabernacles among his people in his flesh. The temple as we, we, we discussed, the cedars of Lebanon. It's a physical building that God manifested himself in. Jesus of Nazareth is something physical that God has manifested himself in. He's not in that body. He has joined himself with humanity. He is a man. So I said there's analogical language when we're talking about God being in the building. But with Jesus, it's not, God's not in there. God became flesh. That's God right there. And we need him to be God because we've rebelled against God. We, humanity. And, and God is the one who offers forgiveness. So we need him to be God because he's the one who can forgive. But we need him to be what this symbolizes, flesh. Because we need one to stand in our place to take the penalty for us. As we eat the bread, we give thanks that he became the temple. And we give thanks that John... 2.19 is true, that his body rose again and conquered death. His blood purified us from our sin. And we raise the cup for the risen one who overcame it all in three days and continues in patience with his people, offering us his forgiveness, offering us his presence in his church. 
His disciples remembered what he had said and they believed the scripture. Do you believe? Do you believe that he has come? Do you believe that he is good as they sang? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is upon his people. Israel and the bride of Christ forever to the praise of his glorious name. Do you believe? Come and drink and see that the Lord is good. Jesus said he was coming again. He spoke of returning to Jerusalem. The prophets foresaw a temple in the last days with, that would come from heaven down to the earth. The redeemed as a cosmic priesthood, the dead raised up, all things made new, just as Christ who is risen from the dead. I pray that you hear his promises today. I pray that you come to him today. And now we will respond to his word with a time of song and a time of prayer. If you would bow your heads and hearts, let's pray and we'll sing a couple of final songs before we conclude our time of worship. Lord, we give thanks and praise to you for all that you have done. Your chesed, your loving kindness, your mercy, your love. Lord, fill us with your joy as you did your people Israel in that historic moment where you brought them back. And Lord, it, it's so trivial for us to even compare it to our current moment in North America. But Lord, as we're thinking of coming back and things reopening, Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with joy the way you filled your people Israel with joy. That you would give us a heart of unity so, so, so that the sound that comes forth from our community would be a unified sound of joy. And any weeping that would come to your people, Lord, may they be tears of repentance that you draw in our hearts as you draw us to yourself and show us the mess that we have made. Show us the, the way of the everlasting that you have provided to cleanse us. We thank you, Lord, and we offer these songs of worship now to you, for you are worthy of praise. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. <laughs>